The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guyon. My name is Michael Guyon, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joining us for the hour, uh, Harley uh, Bassman, who uh, has a lot to talk about as far as uh, bonds go, as far as convexity. But uh, before we get too deep into anything, uh, Harley, first introduce yourself to the audience. Who are you? How'd you get involved in markets? Why specifically the the sort of fat tail side of markets? And what are you doing with Simplify? <laughs> That's a lot there. Got to keep it open-ended for, uh, to start. <laughs> well, thank you for the invitation. This, this is my first Twitter space, so I'm, I'm glad I managed to go and uh, miraculously join. So uh, I'm basically corporate Wall Street for 35 years. I was at Merrill Lynch for 26 of those. Uh, part of that time, I was the uh, I ran mortgage trading, derivative trading, option trading, all the all the fun stuff. I was at Pimco for a while. And uh, now I've joined Simplify Asset Management. Uh, I go by the moniker, the convexity maven, because everything I do revolves around convexity, which is simply unbalanced leverage. You could make more than you could lose or vice versa. It's, it, it's, it's not an even one-to-one bet uh, when you get involved in securities or any other kind of you know, investment process. Uh, as Simplify, what is truly unique is um, we buy the option. We buy convexity. So we give you your ordinary beta, but then we add in convexity where you can amplify your gains or cushion your losses. This is extraordinarily unique because, you know, my experience of, you know, 35 years of this, you know, field is that everyone wants to go and sell optionality, sell convexity, sell the risk. Um, so they could take the yield uh, up front, right? When you, when, you, when you buy a junk bond, you're selling a, a, a CDS, a default swap, plus a treasury. Uh, so you're selling the option. If you sell a call option for a covered call, you're selling the option. People like to get the income or the money up front. It makes them feel good. But of course, when you sell an option, you have limited gain and unlimited loss, which I would define as not a career-enhancing profile. And I've spent most of my career being long optionality, long convexity. And I'll say up front, um, I have a website, uh, convexitymaven.com. I publish a free commentary, a macro commentary, every, I don't know, four to six weeks. If you have an interest in uh, and, 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 and being subscribing, just send me uh, an email at harley at gaspin.net. So I've, I've heard a lot of your your prior uh, interviews and, and podcasts, Harley, and one of the things that resonates very well with me is your focus on uh, the path, right? That everything is largely path dependent. I want you to talk about um, that aspect of markets for a moment, because I think too many people on FinTwit focus more on the endpoints rather than the way that you get to the endpoint. I'd argue that the 
path always matters more than the prediction. Uh, but how does path uh, behavior when it comes to various asset classes impact one's abilities not only stick to a strategy, but also benefit from those tails when they, when they occur? Michael, Michael, I will say that is ex- an extraordinarily insightful comment. Um, that's exactly right. So if you think about the world, um, you have various risk factors. And so if you buy a stock at 100, goes to 110, goes to 95, ends up 105, you make five points. You have a bond that goes up, goes down, ends up somewhere else. You, you, you make your money. In options, it depends how you get there. It is a path-dependent uh, activity. Um, and people don't appreciate that because people may be good at looking at where things are going to be tomorrow, but how we get there uh, is, is different. And that's why options are, 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 are a very different animal. And why convexity, you know, I, I would define the three main risks as duration, so when you get your money back, credit, if you get your money back, convexity, how you get it back. And convexity is not an intuitive concept for most people, which is why it's so difficult, and people get kind of rattled by that. Um, as far as, you know, the path dependency option uh, concept and, and why it's so important and why the simplified products, I don't want to push them too hard here, but why they're interesting is that the the – the real debacle of March 2020 was, 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 was that people, if you just held the entire time, you did fine, but you didn't. Most people got scared and they sold and they never got back in. And so having a convexity, positive convexity in your pocket often allows you to go and ride out, you know, a, a, bumpy, a bumpy road. Um, we are social animals. We like to be with crowds. We like to have the feedback of crowds. That's why uh, when you go to the bar or go to the game or wherever else and the market's going up and everyone's bragging how they're long and you go, I want, I want to be long also to be part of the crowd. And that's why it's so euphoric at the top. And I'll tell you, even for me, when we're at the top, it feels great, man. And at the bottom, it's it's the same. I'm crying. I'm under my desk. I want my mommy. And and And, you know, if I'm long a put option or long some kind of convex profile, it allows me not to panic. And so that's the value of, of having convexity. And this is where leverage comes in. Uh, people, if they get over levered and the markets go down, they can't ride the trade all the way through because they're forced into a stop out. So that's, that's, that's kind of the gig there. And again, for the audience's own education, explain the link between convexity and and the tails in the distribution, right? Because it, these are two words that people often say together and maybe not understanding that you need one for the other. Let's just dumb down convexity, okay, for mom and dad. Here's what it is. Okay, don't get caught up in the Greeks, the deltas, the gammas, all that crap. If you are invested or you have a profile where for equal up and down changes, you make a dollar or lose a dollar, that's zero convexity. If you make two and lose one, that's positive convexity. If you lose three and make two, negative convexity, full stop, that's it. Now, the magic and why we were hiring all these physics PhDs uh, in the 90s is that if, 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 if you should get a 5% yield for an up one, down one bet, if you have an up two, down one, well, that's a better bet. That's a better investment. That's a better trade. Well, you shouldn't get 5% for that. You should get 4% or maybe 375 or four and a quarter. What's the right answer? Well, that's where the... The, 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 the money 
you know, magic, physics of money comes in. And if you could lose three, make two, well, you better get paid more for that. Once again, this is where the magic comes in. People are not intuitively good at figuring this out. Um, and, and this is because people place way too much emphasis on um, scary things and not enough on more rational things. So, for instance, there's people who are scared to go swimming in the ocean because they're afraid of sharks or they're afraid of lightning, might strike them on the golf course, and they're frightened of these things and they act in a certain way. This is kind of silly. No one gets bitten by a shark. Well, I guess a few guys do, but no one gets bitten by a shark. And no one gets struck by lightning, okay? But how many of you, when you get in a taxi, don't put on your seatbelt, okay? That's the kind of thing, is that people are not really good at evaluating real risk in terms of how, how bad it might be and how often it might occur. Um, and this is where people get over their skis um, very often, and they'll take on too much risk and get hurt. And, and that kind of relates to this other point I've made many times on prior spaces and in a lot of my own content that people get too caught up in frequency of gains as opposed to magnitude. When you're playing with convexity, you're playing for magnitude, not so much frequency, because it's not like you constantly have convex moments to take advantage of, uh, but when they occur, they occur in a spectacular way. You know, uh, that, that almost sounds like you're going down like this, this GameStop idea where options are used to go and capture huge wins. You don't have to go and have huge wins. All you have to do is just minimize big losses to the extent that you, I mean, uh, what do they say? If, if, if you go and you get rid of the top 10 up days in the year, you kind of give away the entire year's income. Um, people very often get, you know, get shaken out. And so if you can just avoid that, you're probably going to do okay. You know, my, 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 I close almost all my commentaries with the, uh, you know, advice. Um, sizing is more important than entry level. I rarely get hung up on trying to buy the, the bottom or sell the top. Because frankly, I'm not going to do it. If, 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 if I ever buy the bottom, it's because I meant to sell and hit the wrong button. Um, it, it just doesn't happen. I want to go and size a trade such that if I'm right, it makes a difference. And if I'm wrong, I go bankrupt. And I think if people go and, 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 and try to play for, the, for, for a longer horizon, over time, power of compounding, they're going to win. I, I, I really do not like people getting hung up on uh, short-term investing, um, unless you're a professional, I suppose, um, or swinging for home runs. Uh, it, it's, just, it's just unlikely to happen. I, th I, th I think the tortoise and hare, the tortoise tends to win more often than not. I'm glad you mentioned that 10 worst days because everyone always cites that as a example of why buy and hold works because you don't know when the 10 days occur. But it's remarkable to me that nobody ever goes a little bit further in that analysis. When you look at the 10 best days and 10 worst days over any time period, you see, you see that they often cluster together. Right? In other words, big extreme downs tend to be followed by big extreme ups. So it turns out if you take out the 10 best days and 10 worst days, you basically get buy and hold performance with a lot less risk, right? You're kind of the, the volatility uh, aspect of, of market dynamics. Now, that lends itself to a discussion around volatility beyond what people think about with the VIX. So you created the move index. I know you've answered these kind of questions ad nauseum, but I want to set the stage for the audience. Talk about what the move index is, how you came up with it, and why it's important or perhaps more important to look at than the often cited VIX index for equities. Um, well, I, I did create the move uh, a number of years ago, and I will tell you that uh, for the first 15, 20 years, I, I, I couldn't give it away. <laughs> I mean, I was – It was immovable, you could say. Right. <laughs> As a matter of fact, it almost got shut down 
um, when Bank of America bought Merrill Lynch, and I had to fight and scratch a claw to keep it alive. Uh, Bank of America sold it to ICE, and now it's very popular. So I guess it's uh, matters. And by the way, when they sold it, I didn't get a penny. So I guess too bad. Uh, the, the move index is very, very simple. It is, it, it's a number, um, and it is the blend of the implied volatility for a one year, uh, for a one month option on the two year, five year, 10 year, 30 year, weighted 20, 20, 40, 20. That's it. And if you take that number, because it's, it's not an index per se, it's a real number, and you divide that number by 16, actually 15.9, but let's call it 16. Um, that tells you how much the market, how much um, what the option market is implying the market will move every day. And so right now the move's at 113. Divide that by 16, and you get seven-ish. And that's kind of what the, what the market is saying. The break-even for options is the market moving every day, seven basis points. And we've been, we've been moving about that every day, so the market's kind of right. Um, so it's similar to the VIX. The VIX, by the way, is similar. It's, it, it's kind of a one-month option um, on the S&P. It's a little different that it's not, and this is, this is, if you're a geek, this is important. If you're not a geek, just forget this next section over here. The VIX is not the implied vol of an at-the-money option, which is what the move is. It's actually a blend of all the options up and down. The at-the-money, 10% down, 20, 30, 40%, it's the whole string of them. And that's why the VIX, because there's a smile, there's a skew, and skew just means the difference in implied vol for an at-the-money option versus an out-of-the-money option. Nothing more, nothing less. Because there's a smile to it, where the out of the monies tend to be higher than the at the monies, the VIX tends to be, you know, two or three points above the at the money vol, at the money option. Um, but it's the same concept. You can't buy the VIX and you can't buy the move. When you trade the VIX, your uh, via various instruments, you are not buying the VIX. You are buying futures contracts uh, on 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 the VIX. Uh, you actually can't buy the VIX. So just just to be clear about that, uh, people have been asking me for, for decades to trade the move, can't trade the move. If there were move futures, I guess I could do it, but that's never going to happen. Um, right. Interestingly enough, you're seeing the spread of the VIX over at-the-money options has expanded from 2.3 to 3.4. And the reason for that is out-of-the-money calls are now skewing up also. It used to be a 10% out-of-the-money call would be lower than an at-the-money, but now they, they go up because people are scared of market moving both ways. Um, so the VIX is a little more exaggerated, but not by much. But the two, that's, that's what the two of them do. Um, going one step further, which you didn't ask, but I'll say anyways, um, these two indices, as well as implied volatility for almost any liquid instrument, gold, commodities, lumber, all, all that stuff, tends to be the implied option, implied vol, is about 8 to 12% over the realized volatility. That's it. So everyone saw all these charts for the last three, four, five months of the move exploding up to 140, 150. Well, the VIX was kind of stopping out around 130, 32, 33. And they're saying, why is that? You look at the chart and the VIX, is, the move is massively higher, you know, relatively. And the reason why is rates were moving. We had 10, 15 point days of interest rate changes, whereas the S&P really has not moved that much. Even when we drew down by 20, 22%, it was a very orderly decline. And so you'll tend to see implied vol basically track 
realized. Now, what's interesting right now is both the VIX and the move um, are trading well under the most recent realized vol. So the move right now is 113, which is basically seven basis points a day. Whereas the looking backwards, the realized vol is 137, eight and a half a day. So the market's basically kind of saying we're going to slow down. It's still we're still moving. Seven seven a day is a lot, but you now have implied vols under realized. Um, the VIX at 20, which means the actual options are probably around 16, 17, and realized vol for the spoos about the world. How um. How, I, I just uh, pause for another note. What's the inception date on the index? How far back does it go? Uh, I invented oh, invented. We we started the move in 1994, but actually we had data going back because I was running that business at the time. So I had the data going back 1988. So in actuality, the move actually goes back further than the VIX, and uh, so we we have data to just after the uh, 87 crash, um, and. Uh, if you actually pull up the, the move and look at it over the last, you know, 30, 40 years, what, what, what's kind of um, what's interesting is that for the first, you know, 20, 25 years, it went up and down around 100, six basis points a day, right? 100 divided by six, by 16, six, six basis points a day. Um, and if it got to 80, you buy it, you got to 120, you sell it. Now, I will tell you that whenever it got to 120, nobody sold it. They were all crying for mommy because um, it was just too volatile. Um, but you're supposed to sell the same way the VIX gets to 40. You're supposed to sell that, but I can assure you, VIX at 40, no one's selling options. Um, in the last decade, the range has really been like 60 to 100, um, as the Fed has basically intentionally, intentionally reduced volatility. That was part of the master plan after the great financial crisis, was to really go and um, reduce volatility to encourage uh, risk-taking. Um, so it's, it, it, it's not some weird, uh, result. It was actually part of the master plan of buying mortgages. It was, was in the same way. It's, it's a massive risk reducer because a mortgage is a negatively convex bond. So when they buy mortgages, they're effectively selling billions and billions of options into the market. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now... Back to our discussion. Yeah, no. The reason I ask as far as how far back because is, is if if there are a way to backcast it to see how it would have looked in the seventies, right? Which obviously is not exactly easy to do, but you know the this this issue of volatility in rates being larger than the volatility in equities this year. I'm going to make the assumption is a fairly rare occurrence, right? In other words, the volatility of the move index itself is probably over time a lot less than the volatility of the VIX itself, kind of the VIX, you know, derivative. Um, you know, whenever you do a relative comparison, anyone that took Stat 101 knows that you can make it, you can prove anything. I mean, every politician 
does the same nonsense, ma'am. One guy quotes average, one guy quotes median, you know, and, and, and you get different answers. It's kind of like what you got. You, you have the town of 10 people and there's, you know, uh, nine of them making a thousand a year and one guy making a million a year. So everyone's making a hundred thousand on average. No, they're not. Okay. There's one guy making it all. So you could be, you can say the, the means a hundred thousand or the average is, you know, whatever. So it's the same thing with comparing the VIX to the move. The guys who showed that chart, and I love the chart. I love the chart because it gets everyone talking about the move, moves my baby. So all PR is good PR, despite the fact it's disingenuous sometimes. Um, they started that chart when the move was trading up, starting at 40, which is incredibly anomalous. I mean, you know, 40, 45, 50, I mean, these are numbers unheard of uh, in, in the history of the move. And the reason why it was there is that you had basically 40% of the market at zero. There was no vol for the two-year. The Fed had rates pinned at, you know, 12 cents, 12 basis points, and they had given forward guidance you know, a year and change ago saying rates aren't moving until the beginning of 2023. So twos were trading at, you know, I don't know, 15 cents, 20 cents. Um, fives, same kind of thing. They weren't moving either. So when you take, you know, most of the uh, 20, 40% of the move, put that at zero, and then you put in 60 or 70s for the 10s and 30s, you get a 45 move. Once the Fed released the front end and said, guys, Remember what we said about 2023? Uh, forget that part. We're going to take rates up. Don't know how far. I'll tell you when we get there. Well, the two-year explodes in vol from basically, you know, a realized vol of 20 or 30 to a realized vol of 160. That's why the move jumped so much. If you actually compared, if you compared the, 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 the move or the implied vol for only the 10-year rate versus uh, spoos. Uh, S&P, sorry, guys. Uh, Spoos is the lingo we use because that's the uh, uh, futures contract, SP and Z, so we say Spoos. Um, it's the S&P, SPY. Uh, if you compare those two, they, 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 the chart would not nearly be as interesting because the vol of 10s never got that low, and on the way up, the vol of 10s never got that high. We've been led by the front end, up and down. And so that creates this kind of anomalous chart if you start from, you know, November, December of last year. I mean, look, the move's up a lot. I'm, I'm not saying it's not, but I mean, it's a bit of chicanery when you start it on, on December of last year. If you start the move from five years ago, it, it, the chart looks kind of blah. Yeah, no, that that, that makes sense intuitively. And I'm curious, Harley, have you ever done any studies to see if there's a, um, let's call it a spillover uh, of move extremes to equities or, or other parts of the investable landscape, this idea that if you have extreme volatility in bonds, there's some kind of lagged effect on other other parts of the investment uh, equation. The answer is a hearty yes. And with the warning, don't do this, you'll get hurt. Um, as, as I said before, there are um, three risks, duration, credit, convexity. Duration is measured by the shape of the yield curve. So if you get like a 2% rate for the two-year and a 4% rate for the 30-year, that's an extra two points of yield you're getting for taking the risk of duration. So shape of the curve is, is, is a risk vector. Yield spreads, if you're talking of Apple trades, you know, 20 over or 100 basis points over. Uh, junk bonds trade, you know, 300 over or 800 over. That's, that, that, that's a, a, a risk spread that you get for taking on, you know, exposure to, to credit. And, you know, convexity, path dependency, optionality, you know, VIX at 
at, at, at 15 versus VIX at 30, move at 60 versus VIX at 100. Those all tend to move together. You will see usually the yield curve steepen, and you'll see credit spreads widen, and you'll see uh, vols go up, the VIX go up all at the same time. The problem is there's a lead lag. I'm sure you'll love this. <laughs> there's a lead lag to it, which is extraordinarily unpredictable and wide and long enough such that you will not make any money doing it. But if you had a supercomputer that was managing a giant pool of money and said, I'm going to put my money into where I can get the best return, the best bet, you would see it going between straight duration, so between treasuries, credit, so junk bonds or high grade, optionality, selling ball or buying ball. It would go back and forth between those, those three risks um, as, the, as each risk compressed. Um, if you go to my website and look at um, you know, any of my commentaries, probably every other commentary will have my favorite chart, which is the yield curve versus implied ball. And for implied ball, I'll use like the one-year option on the 10-year rate. And those go beautifully up and down together over time. Um, this makes perfect fundamental, not technical, fundamental sense. Um, because as the yield curve takes on shape, steep or inverted, the steeper or more inverted it gets, the more uncertainty you have. Um, and thus implied vol should rise because implied vol is the price of uncertainty. And so right now, um, we have a very inverted yield curve. And thus, theory vol should be, should, be, should be rising like if they're high right now. Um, an, inverted, an inverted yield curve tells you, like, hey, man, we're, the, 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 the bell's ringing. Something's wrong over here. I mean, usually when you get an inverted curve, um, you get a recession in, you know, 14, 16 months. Um, there are people arguing that we're in one right now, and maybe we are. But, I mean, the inverted curve at this stage of the cycle is extraordinarily anomalous, extraordinarily anomalous. Usually the curve will invert uh, at the second to last Fed hike. Here, it basically inverted before the first one, um, which is why you know, everything's kind of, kind, of, kind of crazy right now. Um, because we kind of can't figure out what's, what's going to go on. But as this curve inverts more, that implies more uncertainty and greater risk. And a curve inverting like this at this point in the cycle is kind of telling you, we're going to a depression, man. <laughs> Do I think that? No, I don't. But the bond market is waving a big red flag, which you can't ignore. Right, and I'm glad you mentioned because this is where there's a lot of nuance to even the way the bond market, <clears throat> in particular treasuries, behave this year, which is, Okay, so you've got the inversion, you've got recession, maybe even sort of a, a depression type of signal given the way it's behaving, but you don't really have spreads blowing out in a in a major way, which is sort of the classic risk-off dynamic where there's volatility in equity, spreads blow out, and money goes into the quote-unquote safety of U.S. government debt, So you know, which is more classic risk-off, right? You haven't seen any of that. That's been, to your point, uh, Wild sure we did. Plus. Sure we did. Look at look, look at high yield. They went from what two and two, two and change to what, six and change. That's a huge move. In, 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 yeah, in, no, no, in but, 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 it, but it wasn't in the start of the year, right? It was it was a delayed response, right? It was yeah. I think in the right which which the, the first several months of this year was really a shift in the yield curve. It wasn't the classic reason for yields rising, which is default premiums increasing. Yep, yep, yep. So yeah, this this, this look this is anomalous. I mean, someone's going to be right over here. The stock market, the bond market. 
are kind of having a head-on collision over here. I think part of it has to do with this, you know, people, uh, the technical idea of a recession is back-to-back quarters of negative GDP, neg- negative real GDP. Um, now, as we know, we, we have to have the MBR go and, 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 and opine upon this, usually a year after it's already happened. Um, and so they'll tell us later, are we, do we really just have a recession or are we in a recession because we've had negative back-to-back? Oh, I'm, I, I don't buy into that. Um, and the reason why I don't is that um, this, this real GDP of negative one is happening as we have a positive nominal of seven and an inflation of eight. I mean, you know, we, we really haven't had that in 40 years. You know, when you have, you know, nominal of three and inflation of two, okay, fine. I mean, I can live with that, you know, because inflation doesn't really exist. So the, the nominal and the real are the same number. You know, getting a negative one with a nominal of seven, I mean, that's a huge number. GDP has grown by a lot, you know, in the last year. Nominal GDP. Um, I, I guess you, you could buy, you know, fewer loaves of bread with your salary. So I suppose that's bad. But I mean, calling it a recession is, you know, ah, I don't know, a distinction without a difference. It, 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 it's challenging for me. I mean, I, I, I'm a believer. It's never different this time. But um, this is this is this is challenging. But it's, but it's a little different. That's right. It, it, it seems that way now, but maybe when the whole thing is said and done, it won't be. I mean, I, I'll tell you this: we have not invented tragedy. Okay. Uh, it, 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 right now, everyone thinks this is the worst time in the world, and um, you know the our politics and 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 it's insane. This and that, and blah blah blah. 1968, we had two assassinations. We had bombings going on by, 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 by you know, internal terrorist groups. 68 was vastly worse than right now, despite the fact that it feels pretty bad right now. Um, when we start getting people assassinated, they, 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 they can call me and say it's worse. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. So I, I went back and forth, Harley, on the uh, what I should name this Twitter space, and I kept hearing you in, in conversations talk about uh, hubris, that hubris is what destroys mankind, uh, which is a really nice, dramatic uh, <laughs> way of framing, I think, today's discussion. Now, I'm, I'm part of my own ethos is this idea that nobody can predict the future. I can't predict it better than anybody else. Nobody can. Um, the only way you can argue you can predict the future is that old saying that uh, best way to predict the future is to create it which I think is what everyone believes the Fed can do. The problem is if the Fed uh, can't create the future or in the process of creating new futures, creates futures they couldn't ever see, like the one we have now, it creates problems. So I want you to talk about the intersection of uh, Fed overconfidence about their ability to control things and investor uh, delusion in thinking that they can. Well, first off, I mean, everyone's always yelling at the Fed and calling them a bunch of idiots for whatever variety of reasons. I don't buy that. <laughs> I mean, everyone acts rationally from their own point of view. Um, 
the serial killer is caught. They take him into the police station. They give him his coffee and donuts, read him his rights. They say, Mr. Serial Killer, why'd you, why'd you kill the family? And he says, well, the voice has told me to. What would you have done? You know, he thinks he's doing the right thing. Uh, the Fed has a set of facts in front of them, and they have a set of goals. And those goals and fa- are maybe different than our goals. The facts are probably the same, usually. Um, but, but the goals may be well different. Um, and so what I'm talking about hubris over here, remember, we, we, we still read the Greek tragedies. We still read Shakespeare. Thousands of years, hundreds of years later, because these writers captured you know, the frailty of mankind, which is hubris, ego. Um, if you look at our politics right now, I mean, what am I going to say? I mean, it's all about egos of the various players on both sides. What is Powell looking at here? He's looking at inflation that's gotten out of control. Why did it get out of control? Uh, what I think is that um, uh, he was supposed to be nominated earlier. He wasn't. They nominated him late. They confirmed him late, and he wanted the job. So therefore, he really couldn't start hiking last year when he should have. Because if he had started hiking, he probably would have gotten confirmed by one side or the other. He, he probably would have been replaced by a more liberal person. So he waits. And now, toothpaste is out of the tube, and we have the inflation. Dodgeman is shock. Um, and he's saying, okay, Arthur Burns, not thought of fondly. Um, Volker, folklore hero. Who do I care to be? Now, people will throw around saying Volker did not do anything. It was just demographics, which I tend to agree with, by the way. I'll say Arthur Burns tried but failed and try hard enough. That may be true. But nonetheless, when they write the history books, you don't hear good things about Burns and you hear great things about Volker, whether it's true or not. What do you think Powell would rather be when they write his obituary? You know, it ain't going to be, you know, Powell copies Arthur Burns, lets inflation run away. It'll be modern-day Volker saves economy. That's what he wants, and he's going to go and do it. That's it. I'm not thinking so hard about the facts or anything else. And so, therefore, he's going to go and slay inflation. And is he going to go about the wrong way? Maybe. I mean, to to some degree, I mean, the Fed has a couple tools, and that's it. And therefore, they're reduced to, you know, slicing bread with a chainsaw. (laughs) I mean, they can't impact supply, so it's got to be demand. How do you impact demand? You cause a recession. I mean, and people lose their jobs and they can't buy any more bread. Uh, is that good or bad? Well, if, if, if you're the guy getting fired, it's not good. But right now, you know, if, if you look at, and I'm stealing now from my last commentary, um, the bottom quintile, lower 20%, caps out at 27000 a year income. The top 20%, 141. So 60% of people make between twenty seven and 141000 these are the people who are going to get hurt by inflation. The rich guys don't care, and the poor people have, you know, various government programs. So you have 60% of the country is getting hurt by inflation. If they take unemployment from 35 to 45 or 5.5, well, that's 2% of the people. And, eh, well, I feel bad for them, but if you balance things out, you know, you're supposed to, you're supposed to cause a recession and take unemployment up. And so I, I have no problem with doing it. I, I hope I'm not fired from my job, I suppose. But I mean, you know, that's, that's what's going to happen here. And, and I have to think a whole lot harder about things than that. And inflation is not coming down. You can take inflation to zero for the next, you know, six months, and we're still going to have a four or five print at the end of the year. So it doesn't matter what you do. And it ain't going to be zero. Maybe we'll have gas prices down a little bit. Maybe they'll go up or not, you know, once we get done draining the SPR. Um, but uh, 
I, I don't see wages get uh, loosening up. I don't, uh, uh, housing definitely is going to keep on going. I mean, OER, I'm sure you spoke about this on your, on your past podcast. I won't go into detail, but OER lags housing prices by six to, six to nine months. So that's going to keep on going. Um, and, and the various input prices for other stuff is, is, is not going to you know, be going down. So I, I think inflation is here easily, you know, next 12 months. So the Fed, the Fed cutting rates next year, which the futures market is kind of pricing in, ain't going to happen, man. I'm sorry. It's just not going to happen. Oh, yeah. Oh, thank you. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mike and I are, are, are good personal friends as well as professional friends from, from many years ago. When I was on the sell side, he was on the buy side. And uh, he and I tangle a lot. I, I think what's important to think about here, um, which is the hard part, is we used to have a relationship between inflation and interest rates. And those are great charts going back. I think what's happening now is that relationship is breaking down. I'm not quite sure why it is, but it is. And I think the Fed is probably happy with that. I think they would like to have a negative real rate. I think they'd be happy with inflation at, not too happy, but reasonably happy with inflation at four or five, even though they say they want one at two. And um, bonds at two, three, I think they love that because basically it allows them to go pull inflation down from eight, nine to four, five, three, four, five. Um, but a negative real rate is very good for stocks, right? I mean, if you're a business, you can borrow money at negative real. Um, and I'll tell you that if they can keep rates, not inflation, rates down, but inflation high, that's, good. <laughs> that's a great public policy outcome. Stock prices will go up when you have inflation initially because what is inflation? Higher prices means higher revenues. So clearly the E is going up. For a PE ratio, usually what you see is um, the PE go down as rates rise. Rates aren't rising. I mean, they're up a little bit, I suppose, but I mean, really, what two seventy five in the ten year is a big number. I don't think so. Um, so I think I think they would be very happy with that as a number. You know, Mike and I are tangling. I mean, you know, with the whole transitory nonsense from last year. Um, it's really where do you want to hang your hat? I I, I find it hard. To, I think we have inflation. Okay, and that's it. I don't feel good saying where rates are going to be, um, and, and and he does, um, and he could be right. Um, I I think that I think it'll be hard to get rates above four. I think that'll be tough. But could they get there? Yeah, they could. But I want to hit, hit on the negative real rate point for a moment because <laughs> that is the argument, right? Negative real rates are, are great for you know, a highly indebted nation because you can eat away at the debt. Of course, the problem with that assumption is it assumes that politicians won't add on more debt than the negative real rates would eat away, right? So uh, I do wonder if if the argument is that you're not you're still going to have inflation higher than than your uh, interest rate and that you're still on negative real rates. If at some point that does become uh, a negative for equities because at some point, maybe equities start questioning whether uh, the U.S. government or any government can really ever pay off its finances without MMT. Um, the, 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 the nexus of that question is the correlation of stocks to bonds. Now, for the last 20 years, you've had stocks to bonds going in inverse directions. So stocks up, bonds down, vice versa. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, uh, I guess, a negative correlation by price or positive correlation of stock price 
to bond yield, which is how we have to actually functionally do it. Um, there is, I won't call it evidence, I'll call it really, really good-looking charts by lots of people that show that when you get inflation above 2-3, rates above 3-4, that correlation flips. So presently, and the reason why 60-40 has worked so well for the last two decades is that when stock prices go up, bond prices go down, so you're hedged. So you could, you could reduce the volatility of your portfolio. That's a good thing. If you get the correlation to flip, where stocks and bonds go up and down together, this is really bad. And we've seen this happen twice. We saw it happen in March 2020. Saw it happen in no of 2018. Both times the Fed came to the rescue because when that happens, stocks and bonds move together in unison. Um, levered money implodes. And things get really ugly. Um, will that happen again? Um, well, I'll tell you one thing is if you look at the last, you know, X number of months, stocks and bonds are moving kind of in tandem. Um, and the relationship, we, we use long moving averages for these, so they haven't turned up totally, but they've moved off the bottom. Um, and when you think about it, you know, why do these, why do these big tech companies, why do they move like bonds? I mean, I call these companies basically 70 year duration treasuries. That's what I think of them. You look at, at, at Amazon or Apple or Tesla, let's agree they're going to make a trillion dollars in 30 years. I'm not going to fight that. They're going to make a trillion dollars. The question is, what's a trillion dollars in 30 years worth today? Now, that's where the rate comes in, and that's where the PE comes in. And so we did get rates up enough that would be, well, I don't want to call it curtains for, the, for, 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 for finance, but it would not be pretty, which is why um, you know, I own various, you know, products for interest rate protection, not because I'm so bearish on rates, but because if they go up above three and a half, four, it's not going to be pretty. You know, when you buy life insurance, you don't win when you die. When you buy car insurance, you don't try to crash your car. Uh, you should be buying rate insurance because it's really cheap right now, um, just in case, you know, we do get higher rates um, because inflation just can't be contained. Yeah, although although I guess the question is then, if, if rates do that, then maybe there's more insurance payout by betting on tail event inequities, right? Because presumably uh, you know, that, that would have a lot more movement, right, in the extreme on the spillover of that. Yes and no. Um, yes, you're bought, you're, I mean, there would be a bigger payout, but the price is vastly higher. If you look at sure. the cost of short-dated tail options on equities um, versus the cost of six, seven-year options on interest rates, um, there's a vast difference in pricing. Um, if you think the market will crash tomorrow, yes, go buy some out-of-the-money puts on spoos. Um, if you want to buy a five-year protection on S&P, that's ridiculous. I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean <laughs> the cost would be insane. Um, but if you could buy it on rates protection, um, that's extraordinarily expensive, which is an entirely different idea. You go to my website and go read all about it. I've explained it in detail there. Um. You're circling around the drain of forward pricing um, because we're saying we're going to look at the euro-dollar curve or the uh, uh, Fed funds futures curve and say, okay, there's a kink um, sometime between December of this year, March of this year, of next year, and December of the following year. So uh, uh, the market's looking for a 50 basis point cut. Let's call it from March of next year to December of next year. 
I suppose you could say that looks true. And I, I mean, it is true if you put, you put the spread on. But remember, where do these prices come from? They come from the spot curve. The forwards are not a prediction. Forward rates are the number crunch of the back end of the spot curve. So the real question um, is, is not, you know, are we pricing in a, a Fed rate cut uh, next year? But why do we have an inversion between the two-year and the five-year that's so huge? Um, what's driving people to go and, and put that trade on? Because that's, that's how these things happen. If you go back and look at like Liars Poker and the old Solomon Arb desk, they made their money on trading the difference between the cash two-year and the cash five-year versus the futures contracts and the forwards, which as a professional you can do, as a, as a civilian you cannot. Um, and, and so what you're really saying in, in writ large is, why the hell is the 10-year rate, you know, 50, 40, 50 cents under the two-year rate? That, that's the bigger question, not the micro of, of, of rate cuts next year. And um, I, I suppose it's, you know, the bond market says we're going to head on into a recession. You know, that, that, I mean, and and, and it's, it's going to be a panic. Uh, do I believe that? No, I don't. But prices are prices, and uh, that's where they are. Um, two comments on that. Number one is, is a 7% nominal GDP a recession? I have a hard time swallowing that. More importantly, although Mike and I love to tussle about, you know, transitory and everything else, where we agree completely is that demographics is everything. Um, was, did Volcker help or hurt what he did? Yeah, maybe. But the reality was this. 1970s was all about the baby boom generation entering the workforce. Okay, they're, they're this massive bulge and they're, they're getting married, they're buying houses, they're demanding cars and washing machines and everything else, and they're buying it from the World War II generation that's much smaller uh, for a lot of reasons, the Depression and well, war killed people. Um, and that was really drove up. And there's some great charts that show interest rate, inflation versus labor force growth rate. And that is the number one chart for everything, I think. Um, and it came down for 40 years as, you know, this pig in the python of the boomers has gone on through. It's possible the explanation for what's happening is this. We are seeing the grinding of the gears of the baby boom generation leaving. They're retiring now. now. We're not fully retired. We're only halfway through them turning 65, but they're retiring. I think this great you know, disappearance of the workforce, just the boomers saying, hey, man, I made an awful lot of money in the last 10 years over here. I, I think I'm going to call it quits and, and not come back to work. And I think you know, we're losing these workers, these skilled workers, um, and the millennials. Um, millennials are actually bigger than the boomers by number. They're smaller relative to the population size at the time. Um, and these millennials, they get married you know, four, five, six years later. They have kids later. I mean, the average age of a kid in New York, first child is 31. In San Fran, is 32. Uh, my oldest daughter is 33, and I keep begging her for grandkids. Um, you know, I think what we're seeing here is this kind of you know, grinding of, 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 of those you know, millennials coming in demanding stuff, boomers leaving, um, and, 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 and we can't kind of figure out how to do this. And, and the boomers naturally should be, you know, selling stock and buying bonds. And you get bonds up to, you know, three and change. I mean, 
when things were at the bottom a month and a half ago, I was buying double A California 4% coupon bonds at 99. In my bracket, that's like what, eight, eight and a half percent? Those are equity returns, man, right? I mean, why wouldn't the boomers be loading up muni bonds or other, other fixed income assets um, when rates had risen? Uh, so um, that by itself might be the demand. You had the defined benefit pension plans, which had basically finally got their heads above water for the first time in 40 years. Heck, man, sell stock, buy bond, lock it in, go home, go play golf. So, I mean, the demand for the back end might well have been purely demographic um, as opposed to a vote on inflation. Um, and, and, and the unemployment rate of three and a half, uh, that's very likely because participation is going down because boomers are retiring and they'll keep retiring. Now, I will tell you this, that the grand problem for the next 10 years, 15 years, is how do we process the boomers? I think the boomers are a pig in the python. I think as a class, we have stolen from our children, which is abominable. It's a public policy disaster. But boomers vote and millennials don't. And, uh, you know, how we're going to go and fund Social Security and Medicare is beyond me. Uh, that is the public policy, uh, you know, conundrum uh, for the next uh, 15 years. Uh, well, I'll tell you that... Um, I, 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 I put on that trade in a different way. I went and, um, and bought 10-year puts. And you can go look this. I, I've written about this trade numerous times on my website. 10-year uh, puts on dollar-yen. Um, and uh, this is when it was trading at, like, you know, I don't know, 90 or 100 uh, like some years ago. It's trading at 107. It's just last year. I mean, if you think about it, you have a balloon you yank it underwater, and some part of it is going to get through your little fingers and pop on out. When you have uh, this, you know, controlled economy in Japan, um, you've seen. You, you, I guess you won if you think if you actually sold, you shorted Japanese rates in yen, and didn't didn't hedge it out, then you won, right? The currency collapsed. So, I mean, if you look at the whole construct, you know, it, it, the trade has worked. You didn't make it on the rate. You made it on the currency. Um, one would argue the same thing with the U.S. Is, is maybe it's the Fed, you know, does this, then, they, then the currency moves. I mean, you, something has to give. The currency or the rate has to give. Um, and so the trade did work. Um, Japan is um, – Japan is – people have always said that a central bank cannot create inflation. That is totally false. Of course they can create inflation. Look at Japan, man. They create inflation. They, they, they collapse their currency. It's just a matter of how hard you want to try. I mean, I'll, I'll give you guys a heads up. I'm, I'm, I'm you know, starting to map out my next commentary. And really, it's about this, this entire notion over here of, uh, you know, the Fed, the, the Fed did create inflation. It's created in assets and stocks and bonds and art and gold and everything else. We got inflation. It's easy to create inflation for a central bank, if you want to call inflation 8, 9, 10%. It's really hard to get 2% inflation. That's, 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 that's threading the needle, you know, land, landing a jumbo jet on an aircraft carrier. 8% inflation is easy. Look at all the countries that, that blow themselves up all the time. Um, can the Fed do the soft landing? Uh, maybe. I, I don't think so, but, but, but maybe. But, I mean, Japan, basically, 
um, their master plan was to go and you know create inflation, and, and they have. They did it by by killing the currency. So I mean, we- <laughs> the trade worked. Well, I mean, part of what you're what you're kind of zeroing around over here is the fact that there's the Treasury cash curve, and there's the swaps curve, and two year swaps trade you know thirty odd basis points above Treasuries, whereas Treasuries uh, or thirty years trade. 30 basis points under. So you have a 60 basis point spread between twos, 30s, and swaps versus treasuries. Um, Euro dollars price off, off LIBOR, off of swaps, uh, whereas futures, Fed fund futures price off treasuries of sorts. So you get this kind of, I don't know, weird apples and oranges kind of dynamic going on. Should you put on a fly? Uh, I suppose you could maybe, but I mean... That's that, that's a challenge. Uh, we 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 just don't know where the, where the Fed's going to take this, this this front end up to. I mean, there's a story to be made where the market's looking at cutting rates next year, and or as I think we're going to to a four handle, uh, just because I don't see inflation lightening up, and I don't see Powell, you know, giving away his uh, his uh, his obituary to uh, to someone else. Uh, two is a three and a quarter. I mean, you really can't cry about that, man. That's a, that's a, that's a you know, it's a reasonable return for a rock solid safe investment. Um, uh, well, and, and to be clear, it should be which, which part of the bond market are we talking though, right, Jordan? So you talk about AAA, you talk about a high yields. What what, what segment? Look, I mean, I, I have no problem with a uh, intermediate IG portfolio. You know, five to seven year uh, investment grade. I I I, I love that. Um, in the in the PA now the four hundred K you can't do it, but in the PA, I, I think buying cash twos uh, and then selling puts on names you like um, that actually is interesting to me. I mean, the volumes are still relatively elevated, uh, especially uh, you know you go out you know three to six months and um, uh, and 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 therefore I mean, you either, if you're starting with it with a three to quarter percent yield, which by the way is state tax free, so in California kind of like that uh, or New York. Um, and, and and you're taking a, a rather fancy premium for for some of these some of these names here. So uh, that's probably the strategy I'd employ over here. Uh, of course, remind you, you sell the puts equal to the cash you have. So if you get put, you have the cash to go buy the stock and stocks you want to own. Uh, you, I, I would not be doing it on a levered basis. That'd be more challenging. Yeah, and I wanted to make the distinction because it, I would not personally be comfortable with anything with high credit risk because I think personally spreads probably still due to blow out in a big way. There's there's going to be an opportunity to play spread narrowing, but you have to have a widening in a really hard way first that's sustained for some period of time. But uh, that, that, that is a charting notion. Um, as a U Chicago MBA, we think uh, charters shall be burned at the stake. Um, notwithstanding that, um, I learned to appreciate charting as a way to uh, understand where people own the market. Uh, back, you know, back to humans and lemmings and society. Um, people like to, you know, if they, if they buy something, it goes down. If it gets back to their, you know, cost levels, so they can get out even. They'll do that, which is why you see, you know, charts tend to retrace to gaps and things like that. Um, that that's a, you know, look, we 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 had we had a big pullback, um, you know, twenty twenty odd percent. Um, that's 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 cheapening. Now, one, I, I would argue that forty eight hundred was the wrong price. So even down 20 is not great. You know, PEs are still high. You know, what we haven't seen yet, what we haven't seen is the E. Um, 
I don't see how we get a curve this inverted and not have earnings come down. Um, and and, and I, 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 I can't, you know, circle that square or square that circle, whichever way it goes. I mean, something's wrong over here. You can't have earnings continuing to grow with the curve this inverted. Um, one of these two numbers is wrong. Um, and, and so uh, as far as, as charting goes, I mean, there'll be guys who say that I, how X number of, of bear market, you know, rallies, you know, were 50%. Um, they'll, they'll point to that. I mean, charters always have something they can point to to go prove themselves right, which is why I don't get hung up on it too often. And, and I want to say real quick, it's also about the sample size, right? I mean, if you're talking about the 100% track record with, you know, four times in history, okay, that's great. But, you know, that could also be randomness. Oh, I think, I think uh, you're, you're, you're stumbling over the truth here, that the millennials uh, are all getting jobs. And when they get those jobs, they say X percent of my money goes into my 401k. And they might have the Robinhood accounts. But the uh-huh. bigger account is the 401k, and they're putting X dollars in there every single month. And I can guarantee you it's going 75% to Spooz and 25% to a uh, five to seven year IG fund. And that's it. See, this constant flow of borrow, of buying that's price insensitive, um, that's just coming from the demographic of millennials entering their prime working age. Mike Green's written about this a lot. Um, he, he's the expert on, on all this stuff. And, 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 um, you know, and, and they're going to buy index money, and that's it. So in some sense, you're absolutely right. Uh, it's a, there's a flow of money that keeps on going on in uh, from millennials, uh, and they're probably happier now. No, I appreciate it, John. So I think that's a good place to end the space for a little bit over here. Again, everybody make sure you follow Harley. Uh, any uh, final parting words? Harley, maybe as far as Simplify, just give you an opportunity to talk about Simplify. You know, I, I, I would urge all of you to, to look at our products. We have some I can't say tickers. I get in trouble for that. But there's there's three or four products that are really interesting. And what's most, most interesting about Simplify is we have an ISDA. We trade professional products and bring them to retail, to, to civilians, okay? It's things you could trade on your, on your, on, on your Fidelity account on, on the screen. Um, it's, it's risk profiles that cannot be created anywhere else. It's the kind of stuff that hedge fund professionals use. Um, and we were able to do this because of a change in regulations a few years ago. It's why I came out of retirement to join the company. It's why my green came on board. Um, our, our risk manager uh, was the head guy at Convexity Capital. Um, an incredible team of people and incredible products that, that cannot be duplicated elsewhere. And I'd urge you to go and, and take a look at them and call us up. Thank you, everyone, for joining. I'll to Cream and everybody enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you, Harley. I do appreciate it. Thank you, man. Have a good day. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, 
and bear markets.